0: Hi, Genre Reveal Party goers. This is Dave We goofed. If you've been following us on social media at Genre Reveal Pod, you know that we promoted this as our Teorema episode. Psych! It's not. It's about Michael Haneke's cachet. Definitely forces beyond our control. Not me accidentally deleting a file is responsible for this. We'll update you and your complaints and... Compliments, you can forward to genre reveal party at gmail.com. Thank you. Hi, I'm Madeline, and I'm a writer and a cultural critic. I'm Dave. I'm a comedian and actor. Welcome to Genre Reveal Party, where we talk about TV and movies through the lens of genre, its definition, its limits, and what we can learn by exploding them. Each episode, one of us chooses a TV show or movie to discuss with spoilers because you don't need to have watched The Thing to enjoy the podcast. Speaking of spoilers, we're going to get into them right away, and I feel like this is an especially spoilable movie. At least I was shocked with the big spoiler. So I'll just reiterate that. But this week we are talking about Austrian director Michael... How do we say Han- Hanukkah? Right, Madeline. Mm-hmm. Okay, you Is say Hanukkah, how you say patina. I say
1: Hanukkah, but I don't know Hanukkah.
0: Period. Okay, I looked. At, I looked at the the pronunciation. I saw on Wikipedia was Hanukkah, but I might be misreading the the a pronunciation. So uh, whatever. That guy's 2005 film <laughs> Cachet, translated in English as Hidden, which won him the Best Director Award at Cannes. And the person who chose this film is our guest, Bettina Johnson, whose voice you just heard. Before I introduce them officially, I want to get some business out of the way. Uh, First, the results of a few Twitter polls about Star Trek that accompanied our Picard Season 3 episode. Uh, You all said that the best older Star Trek series is The Next Generation. The best newer one is Strange New Worlds. And in the poll about the worst character on the next generation, it was a tie between Riker. I assume you did some juking of the stats there, Madeline. <laughs> and maybe uh Okay, and the option someone else please specify. And the only person who specified was our guest for the episode, Emmy O'Brien, who said Barclay, exclamation point. Do you know who Barclay is, Madeline?
2: I think I do, but I also think it might be this other character and I feel you know. We don't need to bring more Star Trek confusion
0: into another episode. Yeah, I don't
2: wanna yeah. I don't wanna add to my own confusion
0: word. Yes. We also have for those of you who remember episode I think Two. 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 Uh the Shoplifters episode, my partner, Hope Barnes. Uh, via text message suggested a genre for shoplifters. And it's very, it's very, I need to get it right because it involves punctuation. So the genre is bread, period, plastic, period, fog, period. (laughs) Any thoughts on that genre for shoplifters, Madeline?
2: um i'm mostly just curious like was hope in the other room when she texted you or
0: why i think she this? just i think she i think she told me it and i said i want to make it make sure it's right so she texted me the, the i see the you needed documentation yeah 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 yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. okay. yeah.
2: that's but what i was curious about i like it
0: no. no um well you should So we're going to wait until Bettina sees shoplifters take a two-hour break here and then come back. Uh, Sorry. Okay. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Bettina. She is one of my sort of local Chicago organizing mentors. My first big interaction with Bettina was having them recommend Robin D.G. Kelly's Hammer and Ho, which I still have not finished I think I'm afraid that if I finish it, our friendship might end. So I have to just extend it. Uh, Famously, there will be – this should be a video podcast this episode because there will be many disapproving (laughs) looks from Bettina. Uh, She appeared on my podcast, This Is Your Afterlife. And twice, actually, one time also discussing a movie ravenous mm. in the context of the book Braiding Sweetgrass. So we have a history of discussing movies. Bettina also is a co-founder of Liberation Library, an organization that sends books to youth prisons. And one of the co-founders of the Black Abolitionist Network, which started uh, the defund CPD campaign not started. I saw I saw a-
1: not a co-founder. I'm not a co-founder. I'm
0: a part of it. Okay. A member of the black abolitionist network, uh, which but they did start the defund CPD campaign, right. In 2020. So, uh, a a great, well-respected, uh, too hard working at the expense of their own health, uh, prison industrial complex abolitionist organizer in Chicago, Bettina Johnson, Bettina, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Dave. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you, Madeline. Nice to see you
0: again. So here is my quick synopsis. Uh, We want to, in the chat, get to why Bettina chose this movie, but I am going to take it on to summarize the big major points here. So Caché is about a well-off French family terrorized by a series of surveillance videotapes left on their front porch accompanied by violent drawings in crayon. The father, Georges, is the semi-famous host of a literary panel show on public television, and the mother, Anne, is a book publisher. Georges suspects the tapes are being sent by an Algerian man named Majid, but he keeps his hunch, as he calls it, hidden from Anne, until Majid invites Georges to his apartment and commits suicide by slitting his throat in front of him. Here's the backstory on that. Majid's parents worked for Georges' parents on their country estate. Uh, Majid's parents went to Paris on October 17th, 1961, the day of the Paris massacre of 1961, which is a real historical event. Some An important, uh, important side note there. This event was a protest against a racist police curfew against Algerians set by the Nazi collaborator head of police – The French state did not acknowledge the massacre until 1998, so almost 40 years later. And then they only reported that 40-something people died uh, when the actual estimate is closer to at least 200, maybe even 300. That is the historical backdrop against which the movie is set. So, when Majid's parents were presumed dead, Georges' parents almost adopted Majid, but Georges stopped it by telling Majid that his dad wanted Majid to kill the family rooster, who it was believable because this rooster was always attacking everybody. And when George's parents saw Majid covered in blood from cutting off the head of the rooster, George told his parents that Majid killed the rooster to threaten him. So the parents sent Majid away to an orphanage. couple other plot points to note. There is a brief period when George and Anne lose track of their son, Pierrot. Uh, They fear he was kidnapped, but he reappears after a night spent at a friend's house. Uh, Second other plot point, there is a question as to whether or not Anne is having an affair with a friend of theirs named Pierre. Pierrot, their son, implies this to Anne when he gets back from his non-kidnapping. Towards the end of the movie, Majid's son confronts Georges at his work, saying he wants to see what the man who ruined his dad's life looks like. Then George goes to sleep. We see the scene where young Majid is taken away from the estate. And the last shot of the movie is Majid's son visiting Pierrot on the steps of his school as school lets out. They have a conversation we cannot hear, and Majid's son departs. The shot holds, staying still, just like the very long still shot at the beginning of the movie, and credits roll over this shot of kids on the steps of a school. Uh, There is a lot to say, but some questions to guide us. I would love to hear, uh, Bettina, any thoughts you have about the relationship of this movie to that Paris massacre. Um, I think in general, what does this movie have to say about any of the following? Family, genre, whiteness, colonialism. And I also would love to tackle... As futile as an um, what what is it? An effort? As futile a, an effort as it is, the question of who done it? Hmm. Uh, very famously, <laughs> this movie does not explicitly show who was sending the tapes, um, but we'll talk about that. So, without further ado, let's chat. So, Bettina, why did you pick this movie?
1: I feel like this was the third
0: movie proposed to you. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying I picked this movie.
1: I don't remember. Well, you have a
0: habit of when we do these things. I remember when we did Ravenous... You you threw out like twelve movies and and you because you you were like I want to do Ravenous and I want to talk about breeding Sweet Grass and then you like had a million other things you're like no wait a second I want to talk about this no wait what about this and I was like yo we need to pick something and do it so maybe that's what was at play here
1: yes um <laughs> yeah and I was thinking about the prompt of family and. I had seen this movie like a long, 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 long time ago.
0: Did you see it when it came out?
1: I don't think when it came out. I think we rented it from the library or something.
0: Okay.
2: Because
1: um, luckily my mom really likes foreign movies. And so I grew up watching DVDs or VHS tapes from the public library of foreign movies.
2: Awesome.
1: Um so this might have been one of those movies. And um, I don't think it was my first Michael Hanukkah film either. Or ha- Hanukkah. I don't know how to say it. That's probably the German
0: stick with, if, proper German way. If you way. say Hanukkah, <laughs> stick with Hanukkah.
1: Um, so yeah, it just really stuck with me. The very ending, that ambiguous ending with the sun. Um hmm the domestic oddness of the, of the white family Mm -hmm. and uh, the fact that it was about this little boy's really intense reaction against getting an adopted adopted brother, which is like understandable period. But then there was Mm -hmm. also just this added layer of um, race and class Mm -hmm. that just has always stuck out to me in terms of like, Wow, I'm surprised that they made this film. <laughs> um, and like that
0: it was able to get made.
1: Or that they would add that layer to it even. Hmm. Um so yeah, so there is like a moment where I was really interested in French filmmakers, and there were a couple of them that were doing like political-ish, political adjacent. Um, folks who are not white, like, kind of focusing on that. I don't know if it was, like, just, like, a 90s trend or a 90s thing. So, like, La I don't know if I'm saying that right either, but Hate, um, which is uh, Matthew Kasavitz's film. Uh, What was the other one? There's a really beautiful Claire Denis one um, called 35 Shots of Rum. And Claire Denis has done, like, other thinking about French colonialism. Um, especially in Africa, due to her background of growing up in Africa. I don't remember which country. Um, so, yeah, so those, I think those topics were probably in my head, swirling in my head when I watched Cachet for the first time, because um, they're things that I'm interested in from watching a French film, uh, even though he's an Austrian actor. Uh, not actor, director.
0: Apparently, he tried to be an actor. That was his first. <laughs> Thing and he like didn't make it into the school, so he was like, fuck this, and hated school and just watched movies most of the time instead. Oh,
1: whoa, see now yeah. I'm learning something from you, Danny.
0: You intuitively <laughs> knew that Michael Hanukkah wanted to be an actor.
1: Um, yeah, I'm really excited to think about this movie, um, in terms of like genre bending and. Um, family because I feel like 35 Shots of Rum is not a genre bender it's so clearly an Ozu like Hmm. homage Um, but she does have some genre benders but I don't think they focus on family but this felt like a combination of a genre bender plus um, family oriented horror thriller thingy (laughs)
0: Yeah, thriller is like the word that's used, psychological thriller, um, which is funny considering we had the Michael Douglas trilogy that were all considered psychological thrillers. And Madeline, I know you had some thoughts about this related to at least one of those Mm -hmm. Michael Douglas movies. Would that be a good place
2: to start for you? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about, actually, this movie brought to mind two movies, because what is this? This is the ninth in our oh, season?
0: Uh, great question.
2: I don't know. <laughs> it's something like the ninth or tenth <laughs> thing we've watched, thinking about the family and so it's it's bringing up previous films, but one was mm-hmm. Fatal Attraction, where um, uh, the Glenn Close character... Have you seen Fatal Attraction, Bettina?
1: When I was a kid. <laughs> But okay, go ahead and spoil horrible it. time oh, okay. to see it. <laughs>
0: great, yeah, great children's film.
2: <laughs> great children's film. Well, she's the mistress figure who's who haunts the house with uh, phone calls. So the landline becomes this um, site of terror in the household, and it begins with um, the husband who who cheats Michael Douglas, like not even noticing when the phone rings, and by the end the phone doesn't even need to ring he's like waiting for it to ring right and um it's a really interesting arc and so i was really thinking a lot about that with the tapes and surveillance technology and um this feeling of being watched and and the the private home being penetrated by these um these technologies um and these different ways where you know What's interesting, I think, about cachet is these tapes terrorize the family, right? But we don't know who the tapes are. The tapes are almost a kind of separate entity because we never really find out, you know, who who it was who's, who's filming these things, right? Um, so the kind of like autonomy of the tapes themselves kind of brought to mind that um, landline and Fatal Attraction. I don't know mm. if that hits for like Dave, that.
0: but... They're, like, the tapes are... J- like, forget even who's sending them, just, like, the capital T tapes are, like, a boogeyman, like, coming mm-hmm. to terrorize the family.
2: Yeah, but I also really liked the ways that, um, the movie was not Fatal Attraction, right? And there's that scene where there's the dinner party, and Anne, played by Juliette Binoche, is, like, kind of explaining the situation and in vague details to their friends. And she mentions, you know, that more or less she could be suspicious of this being some kind of, you know, jealous lover trying to, to, to haunt them essentially as well. And that's just not the narrative this film like chooses to be right. (laughs) But I found that interesting because of course, yeah, that's, you know being in her position that would be something i'd i'd suspect you know with that husband who keeps these secrets but we don't really get that much of a sense of what her interior life is so um
0: right if anything yeah. she is the one that like romantic dalliance you know if anyone's having an affair the movie it's, it's most her. implies that it's her yeah do you think... So, let's just hit it. Yeah. Is is Anne fucking Pierre? What do you think, Bettina? <laughs> We've already debated
2: this a little bit, but... <laughs> yeah.
1: Probably? Why not? Who you knows?
0: <laughs> well, what do you make of when she... Because I, I said this to Madeline. My struggle with it and my struggle with this movie... um. Cause it's also the struggle of when um, George first goes over to Majid's apartment, mm-hmm. um, and then the next tape he gets is a tape from inside that apartment, which which just makes it very confusing. Like, where was the camera? You know. Um, but then after George leaves the apartment, there's like a long scene. Of Majid just, like, crying. Mm -hmm. And these very, like, sincere moments. And the moment like that with regards to Pierre is when Pierrot, the son, comes back, is, like, all sulky and basically accusing his mom of fucking Pierre. And the mom's like, what? Like, how could you think that? Like, I love you. And, like, no. Like, he's just a friend of ours. And she's so sincere in that moment so there's all these people who like as a moviegoer like as a you know person who's accustomed to watching things on screens my initial instinct is like they're telling the truth hmm. uh because she's so sincere so i'm curious patina what what you make of if you think she is fucking pierre you think she's just like a really good liar in that scene
1: I think there are so many... Actually, I haven't thought about it that deep, to
2: be honest. Okay, okay. Fair, <laughs> fair, fair, fair.
1: But, um, <laughs> but there are so many, like, secrets, and because I have theories about the suns at the ending,
2: mm. okay.
1: like, you know, so it may be that they've discovered that, and that's why he's sulky and moody and all that. Um, okay. But...
0: Even if she was, it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well,
2: what I like about that moment is um, you're, okay, yeah, she is positioned in this way where, you know, at least she's put under suspicion, right? Um, but I think us and and the son, and there's a few scenes before where we see her and Pierre at a cafe and I think we're, you know, it's like a red flag moment a little bit, but he's also comforting her. And then, like, obviously, as Americans, we're like, are they just French? They like kiss a lot, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, there's like an intimacy that I think also has a kind of French quality um, that I think is supposed to add to the confusion, um, you know, thinking about this kind of intimate moment between them. And it's also in public. So they're not mm-hmm. really trying to hide things. So I don't know, that happens. And then Pierrot confront or doesn't really confront his mom, but he says this thing to his mom. But in that moment, even though we feel that she's under suspicion, and we're kind of I I kind of felt the same, Matino, you know, where I was like, well, probably she is fucking him, you know? But you're you're also struck by the fact that Pierrot has no clue, it seems, about his dad and all this stuff that's going on with his dad. And he's so eager to blame his mom for what's going on in their household that he's kind of living in this, you know, fantasy, um, that that's what's, that's what's you know, gone awry in his house is that his mom has stepped out on his dad. And I found that really, because just when you're feeling a little bit uh, skeptical of her, you're also kind of um, empathizing with her, I think, um, and wanting to defend her from this, you know, blame, right? Which is like, it really, this film is like so much about guilt and shame, but also blame and blaming um, mm-hmm. that I found that, that moment really, really interesting.
0: Well, that's so interesting because it brings up, it like by focusing on infidelity, mm-hmm. like the, the things that George is hiding are like, I mean, yes, it as a child, it's believable that a child would be jealous of a potentially adopted kid. Uh-huh. But then all the context of it is fucking horrific. This like colonial violence and racism. And that's what's behind what George is hiding. Mm -hmm. But instead of dealing with that, this other member of the private family just wants to focus on something manageable, something smaller, like infidelity. And in a way, even though infidelity would seem to threaten the family, the actual thing that threatens the family is the thing that threatens society, which is like, you know, is our whole way of being a lie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And... Yeah, so so it makes sense that that the kid is is so focused on that infidelity.
2: Bettina, what is your theory about the last scene with Piero?
0: Yes, please. Let's just hit it.
1: I think I I think they were in cahoots. I agree with conspiracy. That's where I think I land. But it is so. So they've been
2: in cahoots the whole time.
1: I wonder. I mean, bringing up Anne again, like that—that that accusation of an affair—is like strange. Like, why would he do that if it was purely like all conspiracy? Um, but there is just such a weird coldness between the son and the father, and so I can definitely understand if Majid's son. Came to him with the story, with the knowledge of um, how his father was as a child, mm-hmm. might be convincing for the for his twelve-year-old son to step out and conspire. I've also heard the these tapes being from like a god perspective and the director's mm-hmm. perspective, and that they're not meant to be like there is no who to the who done it because it's the director, it's the god of that universe. Um, yeah. and so I think that seems a little bit more convincing. Cause it's like, if the sun hid the camera in the apartment, then like, how does he know when, um, mm-hmm. George will come, you know what I'm saying? And then does he like yeah. switch the tape all the right. time? Uh, <laughs> it's like, what?
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, but if Majid does it, Majid could start it when he hears the knock at the door. So that's possible. But then Majid would know he's performing when mm-hmm. he's crying after George leaves. So I yeah.
1: Yeah, and then the other thing too is I don't think Majid's son wanted that to happen to his father.
0: Of course. So, so. Yeah, yeah, like, like right, <laughs> yeah. right, 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 right. Uh, well, yeah. So I I am curious your thoughts about who done it, Madeline. I will take this moment to uh step outside and quote Hanukkah Hanukkah he in the guardian he like answered they had this little piece where Mm -hmm. they had like five questions for him like what does this mean I'm actually kind of amazed at how much Hanukkah like gives away like talks about in the press especially considering what he doesn't talk about like apparently there the what that that dialogue that Majid's son and Pierrot, like Hanukkah wrote dialogue for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And they didn't know the context of that scene. So he's like, I told them never to repeat this to anyone. I hope they forgot it by now. I will never tell anyone what this is, but like, and who knows, maybe it was like some totally unrelated thing, but it's kind of amazing that he did write dialogue. But in response to their question about like, who done it, He says, I'm not going to give anyone this answer. If you think it's Majid, Pierrot, Georges, the malevolent director, God himself, the human conscience, all these answers are correct. But if you come out wanting to know who sent the tapes, you didn't understand the film. To ask this question is to avoid asking the real question the film raises, which is more, how do we treat our conscience and our guilt and reconcile ourselves to living with our actions? People are only asking who done it because I chose to use the genre, the structure of a thriller, to address the issues of blame and conscience, and these methods of narrative usually demand an answer. But my film isn't a thriller, and who am I to presume to give anyone an answer on how they should deal with their own <laughs> guilty conscience? <laughs> it's like the Riddler <laughs> Sorry, <that> <laughs> he's <laughs> very he's very like yeah, mischievous and tricksy mm-hmm. with the movie, but Madeline, if you had to answer. I actually do have a definite answer that I think it is. But what do you who would you say who done it?
2: Um I don't mean to be an I don't mean to be that guy right now, but be it do it. But what but I don't care. I don't care who did it. And I think that's yeah. what's really, really cool about this movie. That's it. I really, really don't care. By the end, and I do think it's about this question of blame, right, and it's like I think by the end of the film, you've really questioned your own motivation as a viewer to blame somebody for this situation that's beyond individuals, you know, mm. and so I really like how kind of neutral the end is on that on that question. It just really gets like it sets itself up as a whodunit and then it just lands flat. I mean, it's, it's yeah. And in that sense, I'm going to bring up another film that we've talked about this, this season, which is Teorema. And I think Mm -hmm. it really has a lot of strong resonances with, with that film and, and the way in which it kind of refutes certainty, you know, um, like and and it also kind of disciplines you as a viewer to that point at that point in the film where you've learned that the questioning is the important part, not the mm-hmm. solving the mystery, right? I mean I think that's a really um, elegant process in in cachet. I really. So I'm sorry if that's like a non-answer. No, no, that's that's in an verboseness. Answer. It was a an answer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: sorry, I love it. I thought I was a fucking genius because I also had a conspiracy, a conspiratorial answer to what it was, and then I kept reading the Wikipedia page and saw that someone else had come to the same conclusion like 20 years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. And my answer was that it like is breaking. I mean, film doesn't have a fourth wall, but it's, it's a meta answer as Bettina kind of hinted at earlier that it is Hanukkah who is sending the tapes. Mm -hmm. Um, And like just pointing Mm -hmm. out to us, like I'm the director, like I'm making these things happen. I'm filming these scenarios um. Yes, it doesn't. It doesn't scan on the surface. It doesn't make the surface story make sense. But mm-hmm. he's like breaking the narrative in that way. Um. To uh. I, to we talked about uh. Distantiation in uh, what was it the succession follow up episode yes. and to do that like Brechtian thing of like showing. Um, or maybe, and maybe it was in Teorama too, to do that mm-hmm. thing of like, you're Estranging. watching a movie, mm-hmm. um, be aware of that and be aware of your own. Cause ultimately, yeah, I don't care either. Mm, okay. What do you think? No?
2: Well, I'm really interested in that, but I also think that it's potentially really kind of problematic. In the way that, then it then it a little bit forces us into this idea that you know that this director author figure n- knows but is withholding the real meaning, if that makes sense.
0: Mm, but what I'm saying is that the real meaning is that it's the director. Author,
2: yeah, I figure. know. But I, yeah. so so I'm saying I I like it. In the sense that it's you know whatever breaking the fourth wall and like asking us to do that, I think that we're both kind of landing on that in different ways. Right? Yeah, like, totally, totally. That it is a commentary, a commentary on spectatorship, right? Um, whether it's like the actual director <laughs> sending the tapes or this other kind of more intersubjective thing that i'm talking about i don't know yeah i like how i like i like that reading though but also i'm feeling convinced by bettina because i think that scene being at the end is really important with the credits and the and i really love these last two scenes where they're so incredibly fucking long and you're spending so much time as a spectator like staring right and trying to to sort this out as a kind of visual puzzle and the way in that scene that you're, you're referring to with Pierrot and um, Majid's son. What's Majid's son's name?
0: He's literally, his name is Majid's son. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, So you're finding them in that crowd, but it, I mean, it took me a while. I Mm -hmm. I rewatched that scene a second time and realized (laughs) that I had, that I've been watching this go on for like a minute, you know. Um, so it's pretty. That's pretty interesting. I really like that, and it also explains why why that's the end, right? <laughs> but how Wait, did why you...
0: say 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 more about how that explains why that's the end? Well, on the one hand, it's such a like casual scene, right? mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but it's
2: it's set up to be the the final moment right there's a lot of kind of pressure being placed on this scene in some ways narratively you know so i like that like how did you how did you get to that point in reading the film
0: i mean no, I'm my Bettina. Yeah, no, yeah. I want to hear. I want to hear Bettina too. But <laughs> Bettina's Bettina's doing the thing that is so good about giving people space to talk. That my like anxious, uh, excitable side is like, uh, is is stepping on you. So I'm sorry, Bettina. Please go ahead.
1: Well, was it like a really strong utterance that needed to be said in response it's
0: always well those are two different things it's always a strong utterance it never needs to be said
1: (laughs) um so the question that madeline was asking was like how did i arrive to that point um Mm -hmm.
2: yeah like when did you when did you ascribe to that conspiracy theory right (laughs) as you were saying Mm
1: -hmm. um just that I do remember the one of the first times watching this being, like, really confused about what am I looking at? Um, um. And the fact that Majid's son, like, kind of walks up directly to uh, George's son and that they come forward. <laughs> and it just seems like... It's not like a, hey, I don't know you, what do you want? It was like mm-hmm.
2: a conversation.
1: Mm. And it seemed like they had already... Yeah. Like, interacted before, and there was some animation from Majid's son's end of things. So I am, like, really curious. I'm not really curious. At the same time, I'm not that curious about what. Well, no, I am. I am curious about what they said to each other and what uh, Hanukkah wrote down. Yeah. I'm fine with not knowing. Um, But yeah, in terms of. It just seems. it's really interesting for why now, why did this happen now? And the fact that Mm -hmm. the sons are so forward um, in the storyline that it just makes me wonder, Oh, there's something going on with these sons and there's something about generational like relays of trauma or generational wealth. You know what I'm saying? So there's like, there are things that are happening in terms of uh, this is a through time. There's like a through line through time. Um, Mm -hmm. This happened when George was, when George was six, they both have sons now. Single, like or yeah?
2: twelve, or no, no, twelve and eighteen.
1: I think so. Something that will... seems
0: right. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. And single sons, right? So mm-hmm. it was like, oh, there's mm. like something very intentional about this happening, and that. Yeah. Uh, and then I think on the second rewatch, which I didn't complete. Sorry, you all, but. Um, it was also noted by Georges that Majid was older and bigger than him, um, mm. so that Majid's son is again older and bigger than Georges' son. So it's just interesting. I wonder if he's like trying to make um, a point about correcting, like how do you, you know what I'm saying? Like how does this mm-hmm. get relayed, and then how might it get corrected, or? Reversed, or like something else will happen with the narrative instead of it having be instead of it having been inscribed, reinscribed again. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I'm curious about the sons, and I'm curious specifically about George's son. Yeah.
2: And I really like I what one of the things I find convincing about about your reading is the mystery hanging over these two scenes being set alongside each other. Um, one dipping into whatever late nineteen sixty one early nineteen sixty two and then the present moment, right, and what is it that putting these two together is bringing out? I think you're right, Like, it's at least asking these questions of of what their relationship is, and because it's like because it starts with the the flashback, the the scene that's clearly a flashback and out of chronology, I think then you can wonder with that scene that you're talking about between Pierrot and Majid's son, when is this happening in this storyline? <laughs> this could have actually been the oh, beginning yeah. of this movie, you know. Yeah, whoa. I love Yo,
0: that. Oh, okay, I like that. That's tight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Also, Majid's son um, yeah. also does like a subvert, subverting or not trying to reinscribe his father, because he actually like confronts Georges. Um, he's mm-hmm. actually quite animated and not in a negative, you know, in a in a quote unquote negative way or like in a non appeasing way. So it does seem like there, it's like another loop, but there are differences um, that it's not exactly being reinscribed. But, but yeah, it's like the out of time. I totally agree. I think it, who knows when that conversation happened. Um,
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: I was tracking his, Majid's son's, like, faces during that conversation. And it starts in a really, like, intense, imploring way. And, And not, like you're saying, not in a, like, it doesn't seem confrontational it seems like he's asking piero questions almost and he's like confirming something and then at the end he's like smiling and there's almost like it it, like we've said it's familiar he -hmm. gives him like almost as if he kind of like taps him on the chest and is like oh you like is what the face looks like to me at the end um and i think it would be Because we're tracking these last two scenes, but I want to add the scene before both of them as well. Yeah. Because I do think Hanukkah is giving us some – I mean, with such a clear allegory, it's very tempting for me to be like, oh, and he's giving us the solution to how to heal colonial trauma, you know, which obviously is not the case. But Mm – In the, in the third to last scene, the last time we see George, he literally goes to sleep. That's the last thing we see of George. This dude who's been hiding things and is not in touch with his fuck with like all this brutal shit from the past. George might as well be the French government before ever acknowledging this, Mm -hmm. you know? Then we see these two things and they're both still long shots. And I feel like one of the things That that's communicating to me as a viewer is that, like, part of the way forward is just watching uncomfortable things and not looking away. Hmm. Um, And then also that there is hope in the future generation because, you know, without making it too, like, tight of a button – there there does seem to be some sort of like conspiratorial nature. And even if that hope is in like terrorizing the previous generation, if that's what they were doing with the videotapes. But like them coming together, and like you said, Bettina, like being closer to us almost, like by being down the steps and closer to where the camera is, um, they are like moving forward. Um, so that that was my take on, on hmm. the end.
2: Yeah, I like that. I mean, I'm going to bring up Teorema again, but, like, the end of that film, the patriarch in the family undergoes this crisis and he strips off all of his clothes and then, like, maybe enters a different narrative universe and is found screaming on a volcano. (laughs) I felt like... There was something really, okay, when he takes the pills, I noticed he took two pills, but I Mm -hmm. was waiting, like, oh, my God, he's going to kill himself. (laughs) You know, you're kind of wondering how much he exits this thing in that moment, you know, and he definitely isn't killing himself, but there is something kind of suicidal about that moment. And so I, I wondered about, like, yeah, his exit from the film. And then I also kind of wondered, looking at those three scenes alongside each other, whether the the two next scenes, which we just talked about, could be interpreted as a dream or something like this. Like, if we were to accept that George is like the narrative center of this film, which I think the film is super ambivalent about right <laughs> like it's it's kind of setting that up but it never quite gives you that <laughs> i found that to be a really in important tension you know to kind of think just when he's a kind of protagonist figure you get enough of other people's perspectives um in the first act to kind of dissuade you from that and then you go much deeper and you uncover these repressed violences, you know, that he's done towards this other, other person who's living a kind of parallel life that we don't really get to know that well, you know? Um,
0: yeah. I thought, fu- I felt like the flashback scene definitely felt like it could have been a dream and maybe that's, I, but I didn't th- think the last scene I didn't associate it with that because we had only seen dreams be flashbacks mm-hmm. before. So something that was happening like who knows when it exactly was happening but that was happening when at least Pierrot was alive cuz Pierrot was in the scene. Uh yeah, made me feel like it wasn't a dream. I don't know, Bettina, do you have do you have thoughts on the dreaminess of those?
1: I think it is interesting to think of it as a dream because it will, it could reflect um, George's like paranoid baseline. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be interesting if he falls asleep and wonders if his son is conspiring against him. Which actually <laughs> would, you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. Um, and might make a little bit more of, Maybe a little bit more sense in terms of uh, why would the sons be conspiring when we just saw the son accusing... You know what I mean? Accusing the mom mm-hmm. of, like, upsetting their domestic bliss by having an affair. So that is, like, interesting possibility. I really think that the movie is... I'm, I'm kind of curious. I don't know. Did y'all read the Paul Gilroy takedown of cachet No. Um, where no. he basically says that it's in bad faith. He, like, claims that the movie is in bad faith and uh, that the film seem to offer only a shallow pseudo-political or perhaps, more accurately, an anti-political engagement with profound contemporary problems that deserve or demand better treatment. Mm. Um, and so, like, a part of me is wondering about that. part yeah (laughs) um but i also i think i understand what hanukkah's tip is on because pretty sure funny games came out before cachet and funny games was all about um punishing the viewer (laughs) the spectator and uh, mm-hmm. literally breaking the fourth wall. Um, like more than a couple of times does one of the characters like address the audience specifically about why aren't you turning this off? I think is one of the <laughs> the lines that he asks the viewer. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. So I don't know where I was going with that, but I'm just like, yeah, it's so centered on George's paranoia and his perspective Because so many of those flashbacks are, like, these grotesque, horrifying images that are probably just his imagination from when he was six years old. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. the whole thing around blame and denial, it also makes me wonder about, like, the blamelessness of, like, this six-year-old is just acting like a six-year-old. Yeah. And, like, what you were saying, that these people are individuals or young people that are caught in you know, the, the tides of history, (laughs) like, like this six year old, six year old George can't be blamed necessarily, but also Mm -hmm. he he is haunted by the lies that he told. And he knew that when he was lying, that what he was doing was wrong, but maybe he didn't realize the full extent of the consequences, which is like, yeah, why would a six year old know?
2: Totally. Totally. So, yeah, yeah, I feel like he can't be blamed, but he also what I appreciate is while i don't I didn't feel a moment of blaming the six year old, right? And it really is about the adult George's complicity and how how he has and hasn't reckoned with that. <laughs> but, um, but, what I appreciate is like while the young George can't be blamed, he also can't be innocent because of
0: mm-hmm.
2: how he like his very the nature of his own existence, the conditions of his own existence and there's actually two books written um about Henneke and another specifically about this film by Catherine Wheatley, and she talks about this as um structural guilt like that these films are about structural guilt so like on the one hand it's highly individuating like thinking about um these bigger historical structural historical social political like all these like bigger categories like that are much they're totally exceeding these like individual character studies that the film is doing um but they're stuck in it. They're part of it, right? And so um, as much as we can't single them out as the perpetuator of these systems, we we also can't extract them from it fully, you know? And so I think that's a really interesting contradiction that um, this seems to orbit around throughout, right? Um and it's so powerful to see that last scene where that that is the longest encounter we have with the young George right and that he's taken out of the scene where um Majid is going to be ta- brought back to the orphanage right he's like he's actually prevented from you know seeing and reckoning with The consequences of his own actions, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. He's physically removed from that by his parents, and his parents are removing themselves from it too. And so then they're haunted by what happened, but also the like unknowability of this, you know. Actually, that was one thing I had another great moment of curiosity that the film sparks is like how much Majid has and has not been in touch with the mother you know um because he says that she's sick right
0: oh not she, Anne with the mother okay gotcha. with, with yeah, george's yeah, yeah, yeah. mother george's right mother, yeah
2: who would have been his own mother and how much their relationship like did and did not exist <laughs> mm-hmm. beyond that because how does he know that she's sick and he says that you know, it's obvious based on George's behavior, right? But I think it also, you know, in the ways that like all of these scenes are like incredibly duplicitous, right? Like there's this other version of the story that comes out there where maybe Majid has been kind of in contact with her and like George has been a very absentee son, right? So how are we to really know what the mother's story is? at all. Yeah.
0: You know. So then do you think the mother is just like when George goes to visit her and she says she hasn't she doesn't mm-hmm. even like she says who when he mentions Masheed? Do you think she's just bullshitting him?
2: I think then the mother is the one who planted all the surveillance technology. <laughs>
0: I think that is a theory that some people have. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, anyone. It could be anyone. Yeah. Right.
2: No, but you know, no. I think it. I think I don't mean. I don't mean to be repetitious, but I think it's again another point where you really don't have to care. You're more Mm -hmm. just appreciative as a viewer of of that uncertainty of the of. Of, of not knowing, of the not knowingness and, and being made to feel, I think you're right that it's about, um, feeling uncomfortable and having to watch things that make you feel uncomfortable and like staying with them and staying with that discomfort and that being generative. But I also think it's, there's another thing that's happening where you're becoming, you're becoming comfortable with what you don't know through the course of the film, right? And like, that that's a really like kind of instructive quality of the film. It's like really teaching you how to exist with that mindset for the most part.
0: Well, speaking of like unknown questions, big question marks from the movie, I'm curious what both of you think, because I've been racking my brain about why actually would Majid kill himself. Um, Like, I can, I can put some things together. Obviously seeing George reminds him of what he could have had his son. When he confronts George says that the orphanage teaches hatred. Um, So it's clear that he's had a hard life, but why, why would this or what would you say pushed him to actually Commit suicide.
1: I'll tell you. Like, I feel very uncomfortable with all the papers that are like trying to theorize this man's suicide. Hmm. Personally, yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's just how I'm feeling. What do you think? Marla? Well, why are you
0: uncomfortable <laughs> with it? I, I'm definitely yeah, as as interested in that as as the actual quote answer.
1: Cause I think that's where people are trying to like insert a politics that may or may not have been there. Um, mm. That Hanukkah may or may not have been intending. And I think it was probably a may not, you know? Um, and then I think it's, it's interesting cause I didn't think about Paul Gilroy's criticisms, even in remembering this film of, uh, you know, like, there's the subaltern speaks, right? There's all this stuff um, that comes with, like, yeah, thinking about the subaltern or whatever existing in in the West um, as, like, not subjects, right? Like, like uh, lesser than, not fully fleshed out. Majid's son doesn't even have a name. Um yeah. but I think my impression is that Hanukkah did that on purpose and also he's not the filmmaker to come up with the film that's going to come up with any of the answers um he's the <laughs> film you know what I mean he's the filmmaker that is there to like force you to question and become super uncomfortable um
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like, yeah, leave the theater not just scratching your head but, questioning what things you put yourself to sleep to or, like, around. Because another thing that's in the film that's so striking on watching it again that I did not remember from the first time, first few times that I've watched it, um, was, like, the wall of books or the wall of cassette tapes and records Mm -hmm. and then the TV screen. And there's a moment where they're arguing about these cassette tapes that are being thrust upon them. And then behind them, uh, there's like news coverage from the Middle East or something. Yeah, um, and it's like, what is you know what I mean? It's so clear that I don't think I don't think Hanukkah what once wanted necessarily like very clear one to one political points or something, but more so showing the knowledge. Like The way that he gets media, the way that the characters get media in their little fortress, their little white fortress with no windows except for the windows that show inside. And then Mm -hmm. they have literally walls of media and walls of books that separate them from everyone else. Um, So good, yeah. so, So yeah, so I don't like... And then Majid lives in... I don't think it was a banlieue. It sounded like it was still in, still in Paris, maybe. Um, but they even call it like low cost housing or something. Which yeah. Was in the uh, the subtitles, and so even like he is. There's just a really interesting way that they're showing the cure, the ability to curate your life <laughs> mm-hmm. or like your surroundings. So just the visual of the, the the difference between where George and his family lives versus where Majid lives um yeah. was really amazing. And I think that there are things that are layered there. And I don't know. I'm I'm pers- I don't know. I feel a little bit complicated saying like I'm okay with this person not giving George all of the answers but letting him actually see the consequences and being haunted by that. Um, And I think maybe that's the point versus like having an answer for him. I think that's what's making me uncomfortable about it. It's like, why are y'all trying to answer for him when he didn't give an answer? Like he wasn't trying to explain it to anybody. Like he didn't explain Mm -hmm. it to his son necessarily. He didn't explain it to, to George, but he definitely wanted George to see that. And I think that's why Hanukkah is like, well, then we must show, you know, we must show it. And it's like really brutal detail. I think you even hear him gurgling and everything. (laughs) It was quite fucked up. Um, But I actually, and
0: George doesn't do shit. Like there's no way he died that quick. Like he didn't go try to staunch this shit. He didn't call anyone. Granted it's been shown many times over that the police aren't doing shit to help anyone in, in this movie, but like, Jesus, he like he didn't he doesn't even walk out. He likes continues to stare at him. Yeah,
1: and that's the other thing too that's like kind of really fascinating about this movie and me rewatching it now because I think I watched it in the O's for sure. Like I know this came out in like oh five or oh seven, um, but that was the other thing that really sticks out to me now watching it. You know, however many years later is the the weirdness that comes up when George keeps trying to make it as if he doesn't have power, but he's the one that keeps withholding information, lying to his wife, um, uh, oh. and you know, like he keeps he keeps and then blame like kind of bl- blaming but also not blaming, but trying to have it so that his six year old self can explain it away. Um, yeah, instead of just being like. Doing, you know, the transparency and, like, clear accounting of of what your responsibilities are, what you are or aren't powerless over now. Like, he refuses to do any of it. He just refuses to – he only goes there to blame and yell at him. And it's so sad. It's so sad, even with the little French that I know, to hear hear Majid, like, respectfully speaking and addressing him in French and the curtness and disrespect um, Mm. that he gets – Promptly, like not even (laughs) no hello, no nothing. Just promptly, like disrespected. Um so anyway, so just the there's it's really interesting to see in the film uh these power these ideas of powerlessness, um that that keep them in this like traumatized literally a dark room (laughs) where he's taking medication to go to sleep type of thing. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: What I don't you know. Thinking,
2: what, Any thoughts well, no, I'm suicide? just thinking about well, one of the things I really like about um, the Paul Gilroy angle that you're bringing in, and I think that is the risk this film is taking. Like, because I, I actually, in the end of the day, feel that George is the center of this story, and um, problematically so, right? and that the film isn't like pretending it's unproblematic that he is, he is um, in many ways, the main point of view. Um, And that's part of what we're like uncomfortably having to look at. Um, But that does lead the film to these ambiguous moments. And I think I really wonder about Majid's suicide, like, why did that happen? And I guess more cynically, I wonder, I understand why that had to happen because this is George's story and there had to be that moment of consequence. And I think you're right. It is about consequence, not answers. Um, and that is part of what made it, yes, plot wise so necessary that, this character has to die in this horrible way. And it is this way that is like cutting off his ability to say his own story. Like, um, and that we really don't know. And yet, as you said, Majid's son doesn't even have a name, you know? Um, so on the one hand, it's a really poignant, like up close, uncomfortable, horror <laughs> vision of like this white colonial bourgeois man and his perspective. And then on the other hand, it doesn't really give us a way of getting out of that, you know? And, um, you know, a different, a different version of this could have been structured, you know, with multiple perspectives or something like this. And it really chooses to be this character sustained character study of George. Um, so I can see, I can definitely see how this is, how someone read this as very politically problematic and just choosing the wrong characters to tell this story and things like that. And maybe the story that he really wanted to tell and, I don't want to make this really about his intentions at all, but it is seven years after um, France, even like at all acknowledges that this massacre had happened. So that's what he's targeting. Right. Um, But yeah, it begs the question of like, what other stories are there here? And what would it look like if they were brought into the foreground instead? And (laughs) like, what if we had found out what happened to Majid? Like, after he was taken from the estate, um, we don't have any any understanding of that at all. Um,
0: Well, and I don't think it offers George a way out of his perspective, but I Mm -hmm. do think we see at least like the shades of ways out of that perspective for someone, you know, through the boys meeting at the end, even through Mm -hmm. the way that Majid's son when he confronts um George in and George like pulls him into the bathroom to minimize the publicness of the conversation and he's like quit with your fucking politeness like stop being so polite and that's when the son says the thing about like um you know you robbed my father of a good education the orphanage only teaches hatred but my father raised me well and you're not going to make me like sacrifice my good manners basically. And and it feels like good manners in a way that's not just about civility. That's about some sort of like principle and way of treating people. And I also thought it was like interesting that both Majid and his son, when George like threatens them, he's like basically like, I'm going to beat you up They're They both, are like, yeah, you probably could beat me up, so why don't you? Um And it feels mm-hmm. like a very, like, that's a moment when the allegory feels like very clear of, like, a colonial power and, you know, a, a colonizer and a colony being like, yeah, you, like, okay, good point, you have a navy, you have a whatever, <laughs> Um and especially because Majid's son kind of looks like he could kick George's ass so I thought that was yeah I just I thought that was interesting Bettina I saw you smiling
1: no (laughs) because now I wish that I proposed martyrs
0: (laughs) oh tell us about
2: that
1: because it would be less less of um, yeah martyrs would have maybe been better sorry guys (laughs) Because <laughs> it's also about so. weird family dynamics, um, yeah, and and all of that. The other thing too that now I'm like rewatching this, and it's I'm happy. I'm happy that I rewatched this. I'm happy that we talked about it. There's no regrets No regrets here. But I don't find it convincing necessarily that like seeing is believing, or like haunted white people won't just keep fucking up or something. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah. so,
2: and I think. You won't just go to sleep.
1: <laughs> right. And it's like, I kind of appreciated that at least from Hanukkah's side, maybe that. um He's showing that aspect of it. Like you can be mm. haunted, but you won't necessarily change in any significant way, like your actions and you definitely mm. won't change what happened. Right. Um,
2: yeah.
1: And. I think that's... I don't know. For me, that seems like it's a fine thing to show on camera. And there's also the seeing hmm. is believing part in the actual... Having the tape, having the videotape, being able to rewind it. And um, and when they were trying to figure out where the hallway was, right? Um, they kept rewinding and then slowing it down, trying to read the, the details, so there's something, I don't know, there's something formally, I think that there's something amazing about this film that I really in, enjoyed and appreciated. Um, and, yeah, I'm just like, damn. We should talk about well, Martyrs.
0: <laughs> that makes me think, I've never seen Martyrs, so I don't I know. Uh, maybe Martyrs it's great.
2: That was like the follow-up to this? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It, it's a different director, right? Different
1: director, yeah.
0: It's just some other movie but the <laughs>
1: Another movie that i want
0: to talk about <laughs> <laughs> well i think right. the thing the seeing is believing Next thing time. is really interesting given what i said about the um the sincerity of those performances because seeing is believing is undermined at the very beginning of the movie because we get this long shot and then all of a sudden we see the rewinding mm. bars on it so it's like immediately from the beginning telling us you can't trust what you see so maybe even with the performances the sincerity of the actors it's like just because the mom just because juliet binoche seems to really believe that her character didn't cheat maybe well
2: what she did. i don't think well I, the sin- I think it's interesting this is the sincerity thing like i don't buy it like I thought you did buy it. I thought we were talking about it, and you were like, "Oh yeah, that's interesting." I mean, I do think it's interesting, but I think it's because you're a lot of it is you're seeing it through George's perspective, and you're you're believing
0: what you want to believe. But I do think, well, but the scene with Julie with what what's God? What is her name? Julie- Anne. Anne oh. and Pierrot isn't from right. George's perspective.
2: No, you're right. And what I love about that, the detail I love about most about that scene is that she tells him, I love you. I wouldn't do that. I love you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To her son. Yeah, totally. Right,
0: As if cheating on her husband was cheating on her son. Mm. or that cheating on her husband would like somehow break up their family. And that would affect
2: for sure. For sure. Right. But I also think because she doesn't say, I love your father in that <laughs> moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's still an element of uncertainty. I was <laughs> like, if I were her, I would maybe not with Pierre because he's got his wife who she's friends with and who's like very lovely to her. Um, but if I was with uh, George, I would be very unhappy. I mean, <laughs> especially in the course of this story, where he's, you know, a different, a different, and probably much more interesting version of this. Or like, part of me was wondering. Okay, so I watched um, that. Uh, it's it's kind of a horrible melodrama. But the affair. Did you ever see mm-hmm. that, Bettina? Or do you know what I'm talking about? With who? It's with like Dominic West from uh, The Wire, McNulty, you know? And then it has. um, Ruth Wilson. Ruth Wilson. And a few. It's like a show type movie. It's honestly, it's honestly a melodrama, but it's, I would say it's extremely well written. And that's, I think, why I just kept watching it. Also, I just like watching melodrama on the treadmill, you know? But um, each episode is split into three chapters. And this is not, this is like something that they're getting from, you know, near realist cinema and like cinema verite. You know, like this is not new to the show, but it's kind of amazing to watch serialized over like, whatever, like 70 episodes of like all these small chapters. And each chapter is from a different characters perspective so you're re-watching scenes from these different perspectives and it has this kind of surveillance quality to it mm. where you the like viewer have um, seen the different versions of the scene but also it has like some of these ambiguous qualities that I think this film is really great at evoking you know you don't really know the full truth of anything, even like surveillance may provide the illusion that you can have some, you know, bulletproof objective documentation of reality and what really happened. But, you know, this film is so interested in, you know, the repressed and the unconscious and like these, this nightmare that he has, or these flashbacks that he has and things that he claims to have forgotten, that are coming back, you know, uh, to haunt him. And um, these things exceed, like, what can be represented or captured by surveillance technology, you know? Um, So the whole time I was watching it, having just watched this silly soap opera, is what would this film look like if we could jump between Anne and George? Mm. Like, I really felt like, or jump between these two, you know, brother figures, and really see the the story from a more um, established vantage. Like I think the way in which it kind of like makes George the default
0: narrative center feels fucked up to me. Like, but like you said, it points out to the ways in which that's fucked up.
2: And like the- it does, but, I mean, I just wonder, kind of, like, as a write- the writerly part of me is, like, oh, like, how could this be written in different ways so that, like, different characters, um, so that it could, like, continue to mess around with these questions of perspective and, like, yeah, what structural guilt, but it could do that without making this white man, like, unquestionably the... The locus of the film and, like, presumably, like, the the site of identification with the main audience member or the target demographic or something like this.
0: Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean, but I think I agree with the first part, but I don't know about the site of identification because yeah. there's so many times, like, in that scene. Well, this premiered at Cannes. Like, that's a
2: political statement, right? I don't know. Is that, I don't know that much about can like f- the French like the, the the French film fest like this is sure. the main yeah award system for for film gotcha. in France sure, and internationally sure, sure. Sure. yeah and it was seven years like the very context you provided seven years after mm-hmm. France even fucking acknowledged and even so it was an acknowledgement as a complete insult forty yeah. fatalities. When everyone knew it was at least 200, maybe 300, maybe even more. And the fact that there is n- no documentation or public record or any attempt to find out anything like this, you know, that uncertainty is really haunting. And I think that's a really important element of the film. It's like, they don't know what happened to Majid's parents. They had to assume mm-hmm. what happened to Majid's parents, mm-hmm. right? Like, just because they didn't come home. And that was that was apparently good enough. That was enough information <laughs> right. for Majid to be like put into this new situation and like tossed about between the orphanage and this adoptive family and things like that, right? Like, so who gets what level of certainty is very much like a, an open question. I think that the that the film raises is like why, what right does. Um, George have to, to really finding this out and um, what gives him that privilege to to know all of these things about his own story when others have to live um, in this state of never never knowing and never you know being kind of relegated to like this illusion this falsehood right Um This nationalist fantasy that, like, nothing really happened that day,
0: you know? Well, I think George wants... No, go ahead, Bettina.
1: No, go. Go, go, go. No, 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 you. Mm -mm.
2: (laughs) Mm-mm. Damn it, Bettina. I feel
0: feel like you were going to say something directly (laughs) related to... Madeline's thing, and I and I was gonna kind of like I
2: was going on too
0: long. Flush to out my flush out my my thoughts. So go ahead. So
1: flush out your thoughts, and then I'll come in.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> I just think that um <laughs> that the that the the movie does like absolutely. George is looking for those details about his life, and I think he does get more than the average person. But constantly, he's being uh to put it mildly flustered and frustrated in those efforts um mm-hmm. you know Majid suicide or um the the in in that scene with him and uh and got okay also i just need to point out in in research i discovered that there are six other Hanukkah movies where he uses the names George and Anne as a couple. So clearly yeah. this is like his like standard white couple. Then there's two other movies where he uses the names. They're just not couples. So it's like, this is, this is his like Jack and Jill basically. So in that way, already George is like de individualized, but then also when he's talking to Anne and he has the hunch that it's Majid, and he doesn't tell her. He keeps saying all this bullshit, like, it doesn't concern you. And she is like, what do you mean it doesn't concern me? Like, I'm getting the calls, like, what the fuck are you talking about? And in that moment, there's no part of me that is like, hey, let George cook on this one. Uh, You know, uh, he'll figure it out. Like, just wait until he, he gets it to you. It's like, no, this dude is like, We see him at every moment that he has a chance to build trust, to change the way things have been. He turns away from that in a way that is so damning. And so that's why the identification piece is, is hard for me.
2: Hmm.
0: What do you think? You said you jumped in.
1: (laughs) Well, no, the thing that I'm going to bring up is. Going on the tangent that Madeline was on.
2: That's good. No, I want to hear that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. Um, so, just going off of the seeing is believing, and how do we know what we know? Um, I think the other thing that was in the back of my mind when maybe when I suggested cachet specifically was the anti CRT. This, like, family and the state and how they work together, um, and how different structures will (coughs) bend towards the, like, inner shame and guilt of of a particular population that it identifies with or something, um... But that's like not related to what you were just saying about identification. <laughs> but in well, no, flesh like,
0: that out more. I'm I, I I'm trying to understand the connection between this and the critical race theory stuff.
1: Oh, I mean the the connection is just like historical forgetting, um, and no, that it's not sure, actually sure. the forgetting part. Um, it's like if you scratch the surface, then you know. Um, Type of thing. And I went to a talk with the color of violence author. It's just like a book on redlining and Mm -hmm. um, how different governments will use policy to keep to box in people in particular areas of a city or or a particular municipality. And one of the reasons why he did not choose to use forgotten history is or, like, a hidden, like, he didn't want to do a Mm. hidden history was because, Mm. oh, it wasn't necessarily hidden. Um, It was just on purpose forgotten. But if you want to look for it, um, then you would see it, which is kind of different with this film because the government was actively trying to not have any record, (laughs) any record of it. Um, So that's also interesting. Yeah, like,
0: literally, they, like, destroyed evidence.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's just all super interesting to me, and um, Dave and I have talked about uh, comedian Dan Harmon's um, apology, so the Me Too Mm. stuff came up, and he issued an apology to a young, like a junior writer who was on staff for the community TV show, and I'm really... I was really moved in reading the apology because one of the things that he brought up was um, the fact that he was able to move on and she wasn't. Um, Right. And just the fact of how easy it was for him to move on. The fact that he could fall asleep and just keep going with his career and that he still carried with him like a pit, a small pit of anxiety and shame around... Uh, what he did to those junior writers in the in that in that writer's room and especially what he did to her, but he could still sleep at night and he still moved on and he was able to have his career. Like there was no canceling him. Do you know what I'm saying? Um yeah. and so the fact that his apology kind of led and really forefronted that aspect of the the entire situation was really interesting to see because there was like a a damnation on everyone else that was around him, not just himself, but including Mm. himself. Um, Mm. And just, yeah, the ease of moving on. And so that's, that's exactly what I was thinking of when it comes to these types of Michael Hanukkah films, because it's not just, um, it's not just cachet. Um, But yeah, it's, it's all very interesting that's another diversion, I think, from the identifying part. Um, but I'm ex- interested to hear you guys land the plane on that one too.
0: <laughs> oh, I don't know if there's any landing. I think we, I think Madeline no and I split landed. split the plane and <laughs> and crashed into different mountains. There, okay. yeah. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> I well, okay, so I am interested in the a thing we haven't touched on yet that feels important is that story at the dinner party about mm. um that the one dinner party guest is the like the joke yeah joke, the, the yeah right it's like a shaggy yeah. dog story it's like sure which is you know is like it, it's going down one direction and, and you think it's going to end a specific way and the ending is totally di- you know it's just been misleading you the entire time uh which is also a way if we're talking genre to like view this movie as a shaggy dog story of just like yeah. it's a who done it but fucking no it's not it's something totally different um and so maybe that's the relationship of that story to the movie but this guy is talking about um how ha- this old woman he met who says he reminds him of her dead dog And that they were – the guy was born on the same day that the dog died. And then everyone's, like, hanging on the edge of their seat. Like, is this guy the reincarnation of this woman's dog, you know? And then he just kind of is, like, boo, you know, is, like, pretends to bark like a dog. Mm -hmm. And everyone kind of laughs. And I didn't think about it till now. But, like, there's only really two very dark-skinned people in the movie – the, the woman at the dinner party who asks, is that true? Like, everyone's like, ha, ha, ha. And she's like, but for real, though. Like, is that true? <laughs> yeah. And the bicyclist, who is the only person that George actually, like, loses. Actively it, confronts. Yeah, and, like, screams yeah. at, um, which is mm-hmm. feels intentional. But I'm curious about either of those moments. Um, yeah, what you thought of those two.
2: Mm. What do you think, Bettina? I'll have to think. I have to think on it. Okay. Well, honestly, I wanted to pick up on something that Bettina was making me think about with George, and I think, you know, you're, this, I think in some way, response to your question is, okay, earlier I said that um, the young George um, while well, we can't blame him, right? That he can't be innocent either, right? And that that kind of perfectly describes what um, Catherine Wheatley calls like the kind of um, structural guilt that the film is is about. Um, I think that there's another way of maybe even justifying the fact that he is the the center of the film, which is to say that he is a kind of monster of like, the French nationalist uh, creation, right? Like, that he he in some ways um, in this moment when the government does not um, does not even apologize. Like, I love all the problems that you're bringing up, Bettina, about, like, how fucked up the politics of apologizing are now and, like, um, especially now, and like how they so very much, um, often work to the benefit of the apologizer, but like don't really, um, amount to anything in terms of, uh, dealing with the consequences of behavior, of abusive behavior, right? I think there is an interesting way of reading reading this film and its fixation on George as really not about George, but about, you know, the French state, (laughs) right. And, and this predicament that everyone has been kind of thrown into coerced into, um, uh, forgetting and denying and, and erasing from collective memory. Um, so I find that like, at least with the is he a messenger or is he just like a guy on a bike but the black man in that earlier oh, scene Oh yeah, I don't know. In this confrontation they have on the scene where he, it's about blame, right? He's blaming the black man for for not looking for them and he's like, "Well, I'm on the street. Mm-hmm. Like you're just like walking blindly onto the street. Why should I be looking for you? You should be looking out for yourself, right?" Um That's a really interesting commentary on like on spectatorship and blame at the same time. But I think that's this the earliest moment where this monster that George actually is really comes out. And, um, um, I don't, the woman at the dinner party. Outside of just asking that really important question on our behalf as the audience, mm-hmm. which I think is is really crucial, she's again another othered, anonymized <laughs> character in this um, who has really no other other function i I thought then than to ask that question um, in that scene.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can't say mm-hmm. that I really I mean I noticed her and I was like, oh um like that's an individual that's peopling this party. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like right, versus right. <laughs> versus like maybe her being a stand in for something larger.
0: Yeah, I think it's a stretch on my part a little
1: bit. <laughs> um, but who
2: knows? But yeah it's two thousand five too. <laughs> true. <laughs> like, um you know
1: but also maybe it's like trying to hearken with like or trying to um, say that you know there's a level of integration that happens even at these at this level of like bourgeois um, Mm -hmm. and then there's the inescapable almost near miss you know (laughs) uh, with that with that bicyclist I I have like a I have the the movie up on my browser so I went back to that he's not a messenger he's just a dude on a bike.
2: He just um, on his bike, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it is it is interesting, like to think about who the people are that are yeah that are peopled in this film because that must that had to have been intentional to place them there. I just hadn't thought of it. So thank you for bringing it up.
2: Yeah, I mean she also seems much younger than everybody at the table. She just, I think th- there was a there was something about her presence at the table, which I think we're supposed to notice. But what we're supposed to do with that detail <laughs> is not quite clear, right? Um, but it but it is clearly striking a contrast. Like this is a moment where there's more integration, and perhaps with that, more of a fantasy that these things are over. You know, um. Mm-hmm and um but we see so very little at i think at that point in the film of the past mm-hmm. that george is specifically you know forgetting um that yeah it seems like generatively ambiguous you know like much of the film like what we're supposed to what we're supposed to make of her or the guy who's actually telling the story who we don't see again either. Right. So.
0: Well, I have a couple of, well, actually just one sort of little fun fact before we do genre talk, but do Good. either of you have other things? But Tina, I want to make sure we've like, not just shaggy dogged it ourselves with this episode that we haven't focused on the wrong stuff. And you're like, uh finally I'd like to actually talk about the main important things here.
1: <laughs> um No, I think right, we're good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Madeline, I what say about you? Thank you
2: for thank you for um prompting me, me to watch this. It, it came out when I was in college and I suddenly like wasn't seeing You know, two or three movies over every weekend, and it felt much more precious to me to see movies. And then I, I had actually really forgotten about it by the time that I could could you know facilitate this for myself as an adult with like a a television set at my house, (laughs) things like that. So I was just, I've been really appreciating that about the early mid aughts period and re you know going back and and looking at these things and i think i i had a, a better appreciation for the politics of this film having missed out on its moment of controversy so um yeah i'm even though you maybe want to talk about martyrs too which i'd be down to do at any point i'm just really appreciative that you um you know assigned this to us so thank you <laughs>
1: okay yeah and i I loved it good that's nice oh the other thing too that i now because you said it and then before i rewatched it um dave had mentioned that it kind of reminded him of force majeure so anytime george is like whining i'm just like oh it's so funny like this is so ridiculous (laughs) yeah
0: um
1: (laughs) like when when he got caught lying basically he's like lying 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 about um about his visit to Majid, like he called her and then was like, mm-hmm. oh, the door was locked. It must be a storage unit or something. And then the next yeah. scene is like the, <laughs> and then the next scene is like them watching the, fil- the, the tape. Of him <laughs> yeah, having yeah, yeah, yeah. Down. Like, how is that not funny? <laughs> like that is legit funny. Like I was yeah, laughing. Um, so that... <laughs> thank you for, for <laughs> putting me in that mindset instead of like dreading. <laughs> Cause I was kind of, I, was already planning on fast forwarding actually through Majid's suicide
2: mm, um, because yeah. I didn't
1: need to see that again. Um, yeah, but actually having it in my head, I was like, oh, this is like about ridiculous white fragility. Yeah, stuff, and that mm-hmm. is actually Absolutely. hilarious and hor- He's you know, it's
0: horrifying. He's such a powder.
1: Yeah, it's horrifying and hilarious at the same time right. because it's like, <laughs> right. oh mm-hmm. shit, you know, our societies are just totally warped to these ridiculous people um, and how sad that is for everyone. Um, But martyrs (laughs) is also about siblings sort of.
0: Mm, of Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, if if anyone takes anything from this episode, it's that you should really watch martyrs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Watch it together. Maybe
2: I don't know,
0: (laughs) but even, even his pouting at the beginning about like, Uh, that when they get the first tape and he sees that one plastic bag in the kitchen and he's like, is this the plastic bag it came in? And his wife is like, it's like, no, it's in, it's in the other room. And he's like, where? And she's like, I don't know. On the count, on the table, on the other table, who, and he's just like such a little whiny. Fuck off, George. Yeah. It's, it's absurd. Um, the, 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 Fun fact that I will note, um, mm-hmm. before we go to a to deeper genre discussion, is that at the beginning, when the very when the voiceover appears over the surveillance tape, um, Anne tells George that the tape runs for over two hours, and the movie is two hours long. Halfway through the movie, when they are watching. The tape from Majid's house, where George and Majid's confrontation is, uh, Anne says, there's another one hour of this, um, which I just thought was oh neat. My God. Uh, like, it felt like a nice little, like, it, it, and and since these tapes are like, if you, both times she's like, if you want to watch it, it feels like Hanukkah being like, listen, there's going to be two hours of this. So if you want, <laughs> you know, you can feel free to turn this off. But uh, this is what we're doing. Uh, and I thought that was kind of charming. That is really charming.
1: But Paul and, Gilroy would yeah. say that is bad faith. I'm just kidding. I don't know what Paul Gilroy <laughs> But he did, he did call this film, like, it was dripping in bad faith. And so I really want to get my hands on the um, the full version of his critique.
2: Yeah, I'd be really interested in that. Because I think my suspicion is it's about, it's about the film's, like, apologeticness. You know, or... P- you know, um, potential apologeticness. All these, like, trappings of the apology that you were just bringing up. It does seem, like, um, very tempting to read it in, the, in that light, you know?
1: Yeah, the title of it is called Shooting Crabs in a Barrel.
0: Of the Gilroy essay? Mm-hmm
2: describing That's awesome. it. I have yeah.
0: to read it. <laughs> it sounds like you dig, diverge quite a, like that you're fascinated by this critique but diverge from it quite a bit, Patina.
1: Yes, I'm like irked by it, so I'm really interested. Yeah. And yeah, then I'm yeah, really yeah. I'm really thankful, Madeline, for you thinking about this as a writer of like how else could we tell this story and from what other perspectives? Um So yeah, it's just something to think on. But the technicalities and kind of like the—I don't know—I don't want to call it cutesy, but it is kind of cutesy, like how you brought it up right now, Dave. In terms of like, <laughs> you got two hours of this <laughs>
2: coming yeah. up. Mm-hmm. you got
1: the one-hour checkpoint. Uh, but I well, think
2: it that's... does lend itself to the to the reading that you have of, of Who Done It, though. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, true. Well, I think that's only like cloying if it's <clears throat> super obvious. And yeah, I yeah. don't think it is super obvious. Like, I, it took me a rewatch and kind of already my brain is drifting in this meta direction to even think about that. Um, yeah, so.
2: Yeah, I really,
0: yeah, great film, though. Like, even
2: if you decide it's it's reactionary and um, insincere in its reckoning with historical trauma you know i think it's worth watching and and having that moment and that that is very much what it's about is just sitting with the agony and having patience with it like what the fuck am i watching this you know crowd of kids oh wait like you know scanning the crowd and Mm -hmm. and realizing in that last scene what what you're supposed to be focusing on for yourself and and maybe that taking much longer for me than for you or you know vice versa but that that's that's what it's about and and kind of setting up this encounter with that deep discomfort it's almost cringe comedy but it's mm-hmm. very much not because there's like horrible horrific haunting moments like mm-hmm. i think i will the chicken scene and then the way it's reverberated, but so much worse with Majid's suicide. It's I mean, it's unforgettable in the sense of being traumatic. Um, but I think it's a worthwhile encounter, you know. I think it it made me nostalgic for this this time in film, which I think like the aughts were the last real gasp of where it was like this is this thing this is an experience that i'm gonna go and have and we're gonna go have dinner afterward and and talk through it you know um and i know that like serial bullshit like succession is kind of like simulating that in some ways but this was this was this moment of um Filmmaking of these, like, really provocational films, like, post 9-11, that I just thought, yeah, I was just really um, glad to have a chance to to catch up on, so.
0: Yeah, it did leave you with, it leaves you with more questions than answers, which, very yeah. intentionally, which rules. I mean, also, compared to Teorema... You know, my like side note of craft about Teorema was just realizing that this, that, that Teorema is so symbolic and metaphorical that it was like Mm. not exactly the kind of stuff I wanted to be making. Whereas this, I was like, Oh wow. Like maybe you can say the allegory is too on the nose. I didn't find it that way, but like it's working on multiple levels. While a specific story is being told, where mm-hmm. however beside the point it is, you can ask the question, who done it? And however you answer it, including, I don't care, like speaks to the deeper levels of the movie as well. And I yeah. Just, I thought that was tight. Well, let's fucking, let's do a genre reveal, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. the the genre things there's there's a couple of genre points I want to note before we specifically go into reveal. Um, okay. Because I think the because the movie like and characters talk about literally say the names of genres throughout the movie. So first, yeah. um, it, basically I'm I'm I, I want to go down and be like, is it this? Probably not. Is it this? Who knows. First one is tragedy. Because George says Majid, it's what happened to him as a kid is not a tragedy. And then he changes his mind. He's like, maybe it is a tragedy, but I'm, it's not my fault. Like, I'm not taking blame for it. So that, that was mm-hmm. very interesting. Um, the, you know, there's a lot of talk about dread in Hanukkah movies, and this movie is very like still. And I thought the suspense was just very, um, was just it, like oppressive in some moments. There's also like no score, which I didn't even realize until reading about it before my second rewatch. Cause Hanukkah like says that, you know, that I, the, the, the way I read about it said that he, it takes away from realism, but I would guess that he means more like scores can be very manipulative in a way that he doesn't want. And I thought that tension built to and was, like, related to jokes in the way that you need, you know, we have the Shaggy Dog story style of joke, but also just general, like, setup and punchline. A setup is creating some sort of tension that the punchline is releasing. But in the movie, George and Anne are constantly going, like, is this a joke? Whose idea of a joke is this? Yeah. And then being, like, it's not particularly funny and so I thought that was um was interesting. And then the last stuff is about like thriller or horror, because it's constantly billed as a psychological thriller. The tension would like relate to that. But I genuinely found Majid's the moment of his suicide to be a jump sc I was like, holy shit. I mean, I I'd I been kind of like lulled pleasantly. I was the first time I was watching it, I was like, okay, I kind of get the tone of this movie, and I'm like soft focusing um and then that happened and i was like fucking jolted um yeah so there's a lot of elements here i'm curious what you all think about that and if you need to just just jump straight into your reveal to talk about it we can do that too
2: thank you for laying that out that was very helpful oh good i had been tracking like the joke question but then you were like i was like yeah I also remember the tragedy. I think that there's two moments of saying that it wasn't a tragedy.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. So really interesting. What do you think, Bettina? Did you have a genre reveal that was clear to you or was it ambiguous and murky? I think
1: it was ambiguous and murky. It's like a political, (laughs) I I would call it a political horror film because I feel like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of, there are other films that I would put into that genre. So, it's just a genre that I like and I'm like, "Oh, this goes into this like box that I like." But Other
0: films such are, like, as Martyrs?
1: Martyrs, Ravenous.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Dude, you yeah, I love this like genealogy you're offering us too. <laughs> this is great. Ravenous is so fucking good, <laughs> dude. There's so many to look at. Have you seen yeah.
0: Ravenous, Madeline?
2: No. Oh my god. These are this is very much like a zone of cinema where I've I've read the plot. Right, right, right. I might have even read some essays, but I, at some level, have decided not to watch
0: these movies. Yeah. I mean, so Ravenous is very close. Cache to an is not included in that, but horror movie. Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: Martyrs is an actual uh-huh. horror movie too, though.
2: Oh, where? Yeah. yeah, I just realized that I did know what it what it was looking at it, um, and uh, yeah, there was a point where I decided not to see it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I would have probably but, uh, I would have probably uh steered us clear of martyrs knowing that it's a horror movie. Anyway, as much as I would like to go horror movies, I I respect Madeline's uh taste in need in, in not in preferring no horror. Oh.
2: Well, it's not a no horror thing for me. It's like I can only really do kinds of horrors, but um and it kind of dates me, it's like there is a period where horror meant torture horror. Yeah, right, 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 right. Things right. like that. And there's all sorts of things that I love watching that, you know, I think fit under horror. Mm-hmm. But um but yeah, I can't there's a lot of things that I that I just can't do, including torture. If yeah, martyrs need to
0: watch hallmark movies madeline that's okay we can do that you
2: know no dude i i was fine to watch this movie <laughs> no, I, I know
0: it. i'm messing. i'm messing.
2: it's just yeah i don't know i can't do that and then i also like maybe i'm okay now i'm like far enough out of my like whatever decade of postpartum depression <laughs> but like all these <laughs> movies where there's like maternal horror like my best friend joe writes about the stuff and I'm just like, I'll I'll read hundreds of pages about this, but I I'm never gonna watch these movies. I'm sorry. So well that's like, what hereditary. I thought. No thank you. The the no.
0: kill the the animal kill I mean the fact that they actually killed It was that super disturbing. Chicken, I mean that's like as a filmmaker yeah. the kind of thing that I'm like, oh damn. So Michael Hanukkah really just like said like this living being's life was less important than the story he wanted to tell, which is not great. Yeah. I don't love it. Well,
1: that's not even the first time he's killed like animals.
0: That's what I heard. Yeah.
2: yeah. What other animals?
1: He killed, um, what a other animals? <laughs> he killed a few goldfish in seventh continent. And, okay. but the most, according to Hanukkah, the most disturbing film, or the most disturbing part of that particular film was not the fish dying. It was the family flushing down their money. Like flushing their money down the toilet. That apparently that was like the Whatever. most absurd thing. Like people were legit upset about ECON apparently.
2: Mm. Whoa, okay, interesting. Well, I really hate roosters. Um it's like a really fascist part of my personality. Um I definitely there's some Some animals that I really don't like, I've never met a rooster I I liked. I've had hens, you know, I've I've had chickens and stuff like that and observed roosters and they're just, they're dicks. They're horrible and they have it coming, so.
1: Did you grow up with roosters, like around you?
2: No, but mm, a lot of my adult life I've had chickens or I've had friends who had chickens. And you can't technically have a rooster inside of most city limits because they're so loud. Mm -hmm. But um, one of my neighbors had one anyways, and this rooster was such a dick. And I just, I don't know, fuck roosters. But I'm not pro-animal torture, just to be clear. (laughs) You're pro, Um, you
0: need to watch Hallmark movies with animal (laughs) torture. Yes. Yeah.
2: If only rooster torture. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Rooster, cockroach, rat. Mm. I'm. I'm fine with that kind of torture. But anyways, so my genre reveal <laughs> segue is um. <laughs> no, but I thought it was a nationalist nightmare, and that was my way of justifying again the way in which it is so much about George. Um, nightmares do happen at the level of the individual, right? Um, they take place in the unconscious, but there's, you know, I do appreciate the ways in which, even though it's really staying with George and his, this character study of him, um, it's teasing out the collective trauma, in, and and thinking you know he is a kind of proxy figure of the French state and um, so I think that that's like the most generous reading I could go critical but um but I think if there's an opportunity that the film presents us with it's to kind of really sit with this nationalist nightmare and have to have to unpack it so yeah, especially
1: the ending with that's the sons my- talking to each other. It's like, oh my God. <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: yeah, and I had written that before. and then what you were bringing up too, I was like, oh my God, this is actually convincing me more that like some of the some of these scenes are a nightmare. And, you know, we know some of them are for sure, but um, and that nightmares are repressed memories returning. Right with that scene with Majid and the blood, all the young Majid with the blood all over his face. Um, but and contorting themselves, right? But I think that yeah, thinking about that last scene as a part of his dream is very compelling. So for
0: sure, yeah. Well, mine was I called it a colonial amnesia dread crescendo. Oh. Forwards, I know you guys both really beat me, it, it, Bettina, It's been a theme. I've tried to really like compete with the comedy, horror, tragedies of the word world by getting my my genre names down to as few words as possible. But I just we don't know why. I don't know why. He, yeah, I don't. I, it's just a th- it just. You know, I feel like if we invent Got the right genre. Yeah, yeah, it is my concision <laughs> trip, absolutely. Um, so yeah, that was my that was my thought. I think I think we've, you know, covered mostly. But it really I like it the, the crescendo. I just felt like that dread built like and mm-hmm. and, and really ended, you know, the cres- like like a fucking orchestra, you know, falling out when Majid committed the suicide. Dave, you are such a music man as well,
2: because... Um, I know, I think I said crescendo. <laughs> no, you haven't said crescendo, but you had a polka, you had an accordion. You're bringing up music. I mean, I
0: yeah, I didn't know. Well, it is a genre. It is a, a natural genre. Drift. I'm trying to turn this yeah. show into talking about my uh, growing CD collection as much as possible. Eventually, that's, that's all we're going to be doing. I'll just be listing listing cds that i i bought and that'll be the end and then you will have a different code <laughs> <laughs> well so bettina politi- political horror is yours
1: yeah Even i love it a, a political 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 okay
0: a a in <laughs> no, that's good a in parentheses There's some political more words. Horror? <laughs> um well that is the show, Bettina. This was great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for coming on, Bettina. For anyone who awesome to talk. has thoughts about the genre, uh, email us at genrerevealparty at gmail.com. Listen, the, we're, uh, someday we're going to figure out how to, at the beginning of the episode, give thoughts on the the film that was directly previous- Right now we are ahead in our recording schedule. So you hear you hear thoughts on the previous episode, like three weeks later. Why are you promising this? I'm saying I don't like that. I'm being aspirational. You know. <laughs> but uh but yeah, you can also <laughs> follow us at genre reveal pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh we just we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh this this movie is one that that sparked a lot for us and we'd love to hear yours. Um yeah. Any anything you want to uh, tell people about, Bettina? Uh,
1: look into Liberation Library. We send books to young folks who are incarcerated. Uh, and we're fundraising right now for supporting our magazine. Inside. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Give, yeah. Us, give us What's that it? link and we'll put that in the show notes. The fundraising okay. link. Yeah. Cool.
2: Awesome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yay, yeah. Thank you and for having I have having nothing me. to plug.
0: Nothing to plug? Oh, nothing to plug. <laughs> Love it. All right, just
2: this. Maybe we'll see you next time for Martyrs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, don't promise that either.
1: Yeah, no, I don't know that I would recommend Martyrs now that I know that you hate like dislike horror films
0: (laughs) because that is literally it's
1: a slasher torture film.
2: Oh my Um, god! God. Yeah, I'd have to watch it at like eight a.m. in a bright room, you know, with my dogs.
1: Yeah, and it's like legit pretty scary. Yeah. Ooh,
2: yeah. I don't know.
0: I don't
1: know. But there's a political. But we can just talk about. It. You can just. I think you can read about it, and then I'd
2: be inter- I'd still yeah, be interested.
0: Well, to I'd talk to you about it. So welcome to the post show. To to we are here for genre reveal party martyrs. We're gonna
2: talk about martyrs. <laughs> <laughs>